my father was, is, and was a spelunker. That's not what I do with a bag of Oreos. That's a caver. All of his life, he has been a caver. He loves everything about caves. He likes going inside of them, exploring them, surveying them, cutting holes in walls to see what's on the other side. He loves caves. He even likes the bats when they fly past your head. He loves caves. And so as a child, my siblings and I had the privilege of learning a lot about caves. We learned about stalactites and stalagmites. This will be interesting. Stalactites hold tightly to the ceiling and stalagmites one day just might reach the ceiling. One time we went into a cave that had a massive room. You go into caves and you're kind of used to being in little tiny spaces. And this room was huge. I was probably 10 or 11, so my memory might be off on the size of the room. But I would estimate the ceiling was 10 to 15 feet high and the room was 20 to 30 feet long. And we had a family friend who wanted to take a picture inside this massive room of this cave. And so he told us, okay, he handed me a flash and he sent me to one side of the room and he went to the other side of the room and there's someone in the middle who also had a flash. And he said, okay, now everyone turn off your lights. Your head lanterns, your flashlights, all of them turned off. And the room went completely dark. It was pitch black. I waved my hand in front of my face, and I had to question, is my hand actually in front of my face? Because I can't see it. You can't see your feet. You can't see the ground in front of you. You couldn't see the walls, the ceiling. Everything was black. There was absolutely no light anywhere. And it was the first time in my life that I had ever experienced what it must be like to be physically blind. My eyes were open. I was trying to see. I just couldn't. I was blind. No amount of effort or desire could change the reality that in that cave, in the absence of light, I was completely blind. Scripture uses the same analogy to describe the unconverted sinner. Jesus in Mark 8, verse 18 said, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? The blindness of the Pharisees was not physical blindness. That's who he was speaking to. They truly had eyes. Their physical eyes were working just fine. And yet they were completely blind to spiritual truth. They could not see it. Paul in Romans 1 referred to spiritual blindness when he described the unbelieving as having a darkened heart. Their spiritual blindness is so severe that they know God exists and yet still refuse to worship him as God. Instead, they choose to worship man and animals and crawling creatures. Jesus in Mark 4 told the disciples, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Like in Romans 1, Jesus describes a blindness of the mind, a blindness of the heart that is incapable of understanding and seeing spiritual truth. They cannot see spiritual realities. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 
refer to the believer as the natural man. And he says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He cannot appraise spiritual things because he is a mere natural man. The unbeliever cannot understand spiritual truth. The sinner is blinded by their sin. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul said, in whose case the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They are blinded, so blind they can't even see the light of Christ. So that begs the question, we're all sinners here. How is it that some of us have the ability to see spiritual truth? How can a blind sinner see and believe the truth? It is Jesus Christ who enables that. He is the light that reveals all things. The unbeliever needs what I needed in that cave as a child. The unbeliever needs light. Not physical light, but spiritual light. And that light is found in only one place. Jesus Christ. In the prologue to John's gospel, John begins with an explanation of who is Jesus Christ. And he identifies Jesus as the word of God in verses 1 through 3. In verse 4, he says, the word is the light. Excuse me, in verse 4, he says that Jesus is the life. Jesus gives physical life. Jesus gives spiritual life. Verse 5, he says that the word is the light. The light reveals truth. Light exposes what is truly in front of you. It exposes reality. And the more light you have, the more understanding you will have. Without light, you are blind. Jesus Christ is the light. He told his disciples, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness. Jesus Christ reveals all true wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, Paul says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. True wisdom, true knowledge, true understanding comes from the light, Jesus Christ. In John 1, 6-13, the divine light will reveal three truths about salvation. The light is now going to explain to blind sinners how they can come to a saving knowledge of Christ, how they can actually begin to see. Let's begin with the first truth. The divine light reveals that salvation occurs under genuine Christian ministry. Salvation comes when a person is actually receiving genuine Christian ministry. There are many who have entered into what is commonly accepted as Christian ministry. Some insist that they are part of a Christian priesthood. That their job is to mediate between men and God. That they are the go-between. They teach that their ministry is to administer ceremonies or sacraments. And through these sacraments, individuals receive grace and mercy. The Christian minister, in their view, acts, and I quote, in persona Christi Capitus. That is to say, the priest takes the place of Christ. 
He acts in the authority of Christ. He dispenses the grace of Christ. That's their view of what Christian ministry is. Others have a ministry which points people not to Christ, but it points them to themselves. The teacher says, I am the solution that you need. If you're blind, you come to me, and I'll solve the problem for you. They insist that if you want salvation, if you want peace with God, you must follow their advice and their wisdom. Their ministries magnify and exalt the preacher and the pastor rather than Christ. The sum and the substance of their message is not Christ, it's themselves. But salvation only occurs through a genuine Christian ministry. A ministry that places someone in the place of Christ or points you to someone other than Christ is not genuine. Notice in verse 6, John writes, There came a man. At the end of verse 6, he says his name was John. Now, it's important to recall that the, the apostle does not identify himself as John in this letter. This gospel, the apostle John never says, my name is John. Any reference you see to John in this gospel or in any of his letters is a reference to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist here is introduced as a man. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among these born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet when the apostle John introduces him, he's a man. That's it. He's not a prophet. He's not a great man. He's not a man of God. The verb he uses here, he came is the same verb the Apostle John used in verse 3 to describe all things coming into existence. He's a creature. He's part of the creation. He is a created being. He is a man. And there is an intentional effort here to minimize John the Baptist. And this is not to insult John the Baptist. This is not to say something bad about him, but is to create a comparison and to magnify Christ. In verses 1 through 3, the Logos, the word, is described as being eternal, dwelling in a perfect face-to-face relationship with the Father. In verse 4, the word is the life that gives life to men, both physical and spiritual. In verse 5, he is the light which overcomes darkness. But you get to verse 6 and the narrative changes. And your eyes shift from the glorious Christ to just a man creature. When compared with the first five verses, John the Baptist is given a meager and unflattering description. This is done so that Christ, the word of God, the light, would stand out as supreme. True Christian ministers are happy to shrink into oblivion that Christ would be magnified. John the Baptist, I think, would agree with this. Later in John 3, he said, He, speaking of Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. The hero is not the minister. It's not the preacher. The hero is not the pastor. The hero of our story is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, we do admire and respect men throughout history who have been used of God. 
We're grateful for men like Athanasius and Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, MacArthur, Sproul, Beck, Bellington. We're, We're thankful for all of them. We thank the Lord for their service, for their ministry, but they are mere instruments in the hands of a Redeemer. They are tools used of God, used by Him for His purposes. They, like John the Baptist, are mere creatures who were, verse 6 again says, sent from God. John the Baptist was sent from God. And a quick study of Scripture would reveal that this is absolutely true. His ministry was determined long before he ever came on the scene. And in fact, the Old Testament prophesied about the ministry of John the Baptist. Isaiah and Malachi both prophesied his ministry. His birth was miraculous. Both his parents were advanced in years. And in fact, his father didn't believe the angel for the express purpose of, we're too old. There's no way we're going to have a child. The conception and birth of John the Baptist was nothing short of miraculous. John was filled with the Spirit before he ever left the womb, empowered by God for ministry. If ever there was a man in the world who could say he was certain that he had a call to the ministry, it was John the Baptist. Yet he's described in the most modest terms. His introduction is merely to tell his name and to remind you that he was human and that he was called to the ministry. That's all we learn about John the Baptist in John 1 about him as a person. So what do we learn about John's ministry? What was the focus of his ministry? Look at verse 7. He, that would be John the Baptist, came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. John was not the focus of his own ministry. John wasn't a mediator. He didn't dispense grace. He didn't promote himself. No, John was a witness. Now, you can use this term witness in a couple of different ways. You can witness based on your firsthand account in a personal setting. I saw this personally, and I'm going to tell you what happened. You can also be a witness to others regarding something you personally believe. We talk about our Christian witness to others and what Christ has done in us. This term can also be used in a legal sense. The witness appears in court to give firsthand, a first-hand account of what he or she knows. What he or she knows to be true. The w- job of a witness is to give evidence. John the Baptist came as a witness. John was going to testify, to give evidence And what was he going to give evidence about? Verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light. John came for one reason and one reason only. He came to testify and to give evidence of the light. We know who this light is. We know it's the Word. We know that because verses 1 and 3 describe Jesus as the Word. Verse 5 describes the Word as the light. The Word is the light. Verse 7, John is going to testify about the light. The light is the word. Verses 14 and 15, the word became incarnate, became flesh. 
And in verse 15, he says, this is the one I am testifying about. And then in verse 29 of the same chapter, John explicitly points to Jesus and says, that's who I'm talking about. The light is Jesus Christ. And John came to testify, to present evidence, and to tell what he knows about Christ. He didn't come to mediate between men and God. He didn't come to administer sacraments and religious ceremonies that dispense grace. He came to tell about a person. He came to preach a message. That message is the light. It is Christ. And John the Baptist wasn't really interested in people following him. His goal was not popularity or fame. That's not what drove his ministry. And apparently some people thought that was the point of his ministry. Some people thought that John is the guy I need to be following. He's the one I need to listen to. He's the one who has the wisdom and the knowledge. Because if you look at verse 8, John refutes this and he says he was not the light but he came to testify about the light. There were people who were following John, but ignoring Jesus. And so the apostle John says, look, he is not the light. Now that statement presents something of a problem. In John 5, verse 35, Jesus spoke of John the Baptist, and he says he was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So John 1, he's not the light. John 5, apparently he is a light. So which one is true? Well, the answer is both. John the Baptist is described as a lamp. A lamp produces light. You light the lamp and it burns and it produces a light. Jesus is not described as a lamp. Jesus is pure light. Jesus is essential light. John is reflected light, produced light. Jesus is light in and of himself. He doesn't make light in that sense. So John says, John the Baptist was not the light. In verse 8, but he came to testify about the light. John is not the one you're supposed to be looking for. He's not the one you're supposed to be following. John came to point you to someone else. He came to point everyone to Christ. John's ministry was to diminish himself and point you to Christ. Genuine Christian ministry always points the sinner to Christ. And what was his goal? Go back up to verse 7. He came to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. What is the goal of gospel ministry? What is the goal of genuine Christian ministry? True Christian ministry does not focus on fixing temporal circumstances. Although there's nothing wrong and it's actually good to go and help people who are poor and suffering. But that is not the primary goal of Christian ministry. It does not work towards social change or revolution. 
true Christian ministry focused on the proclamation of the gospel so that more people would come to know and to believe and trust in Christ. And in sending John the Baptist, the divine light exposes the nature of genuine Christian ministry and salvation. Genuine Christian ministry is Christ-centered and Christ-dominated. Genuine Christian ministry makes much of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 said, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul wrote to the Philippians from, from prison. And he said that some people, while he was in prison, were out preaching. And he said they preach out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. See, they all realize, look, the Apostle Paul's in prison. This is the time for us to boost our ministry numbers. We can attract some more followers. We're going to go out and start preaching about Christ so we can become more popular. Paul responded to these people. He said, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. The focus of Paul's ministry was not self-promotion and self-aggrandizement, getting more people to follow after him. His goal in ministry was to proclaim Christ, to point everyone to Christ. He told the Corinthians, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Genuine Christian ministry focuses its efforts on proclaiming Christ. Because in that proclamation, there is salvation. In Romans 10, Paul says that belief, that faith in Christ brings salvation. But how do people come to saving faith? And he asked that question, how then will they call on him? How will they call on Christ, whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him, whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? If no one goes to these lost, dying individuals and tells them about Christ and gives them the gospel, how will they believe? A few verses later, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Salvation occurs only through genuine Christian ministry that preaches and proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who claims to be in the Christian ministry and fails to proclaim Christ cuts people off from salvation because they refuse to tell them about the one person who can actually save them. The divine light, Jesus Christ, sent John the Baptist to expose the, genuine, uh, the nature of genuine Christian ministry as being Christ-dominated. The Christian ministry focuses on and exalts Christ. So the divine light reveals that salvation occurs through genuine Christian ministry. Secondly, the divine light exposes that sinners reject Christ because they are blind. Look at verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. In verse 8, the apostle John clarifies that John the Baptist is not the light. 
in verse 9, we, tra- we transition. And now he's going to talk specifically about the light. John says there was the true light. The Greek here makes clear this light was not created. This light has always been around. This light is eternal. And when the apostle says Jesus is the true light, what he is affirming is the full deity and the full manifestation of God's glory in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the clearest revelation of God. John 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The only way you're going to come to know God, the only way you're going to have a true relationship with the Father is if you come to know Christ. Verse 9 again, John says of the light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. The phrase coming into the world refers directly to the incarnation. The same idea is mentioned again in verse 14 when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, dwelt on the earth. He lived in his own creation. And why did he come? He came to enlighten every man. To open blind eyes that sinners would see themselves correctly. That the unbelieving would recognize what they actually are before God. You see, unbelievers are not victims of ignorance. If you're here today and you don't believe in Christ, it's not because you don't have enough information. Romans 1 says that all men have enough knowledge to know that God exists. Romans 1 verse 18 says of the unbeliever, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. They have knowledge that God exists. They know he is real. They know he exists. And Romans 1 says they are without excuse when they deny him, when they refuse to worship him. In fact, it actually says they suppress the knowledge of truth in unrighteousness. This idea of suppress, if you were to take a beach ball and go out to the ocean, fill the beach ball with air and push it underwater, if you let go of the beach ball, what happens? pops right back up. To keep the beach ball underwater, you have to hold it down and intentionally suppress it. That's the idea. They have the truth, they know God exists, and they intentionally suppress and hold that down and ignore it. But the knowledge that God exists isn't enough to save. Just knowing there's a creator isn't enough to save you. Paul says in Romans 1, they are without excuse That knowledge only deprives them of the excuse. It brings condemnation. When the Apostle John says that Christ came to enlighten every man, it was to show them that they are under the condemnation of God. They stand condemned before God. The wrath of God abides upon them now. And they are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. If you never realize that you're a sinner if you never understand that you are under the wrath of God, that you are headed for destruction, you will never turn to Christ. 
you will never see a need to be saved. Sinners refuse to come to Christ because they are blinded by their own sin. And that blindness is made abundantly clear in verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 10. He says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. John repeats this term, the world, three times. This can be used to refer to all of creation, the universe. It can also be used to just describe the earth. It can also be used to describe the world systems that are controlled by Satan. John says that Jesus is the light. And he was in the world. And the world was created by him. This is a reference to the physical earth. He was in the earth. He was on the earth. And that world was made by him. He came and dwelt in his own creation. And the world, the world in which he lived, the world that was made by him, the one that he spoke into existence, they didn't recognize him. You would think if God walked into the room, everybody would notice. You would think if God walked in right now, everybody would look and realize that's who he is. John says, the world did not know him. And this final reference to world doesn't speak about the earth itself. It speaks about the system, the man-made system that's controlled by Satan. The sinful, unbelieving world did not know him. To know him is not intellectual knowledge. It's not just to know some facts about him. There were many people who knew facts about Jesus as you read through the Gospels. To know refers to intimate knowledge. It's the knowledge of a friend. It's the knowledge of a loving relationship. The world, you might say, did not recognize him, nor did they love him. Now, this doesn't mean that they all, like, spit in his face. They're not all in open rebellion against him. Many, at best, were just indifferent But indifference doesn't really help their case. If your spouse is indifferent to you, does that make you feel better? Being indifferent to Christ is the same as rejecting him. But the most shocking rejection was not the unbelieving world. The most shocking indifference and rejection came from the people who should have recognized him. The ones who should have been the first to recognize the Messiah. The ones who were entrusted with the oracles of God, who received the law and the prophets. The ones he said he came to save. The ones Yahweh called my people. The people who should have recognized the Messiah are the Jews. Look at verse 11. He came to his own. And those were who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own. Literally, he came to his home, to his own possession, to his own land. This is the nation of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus came to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was land that he himself had promised to Israel. And the descendants of Abraham, while they were living in the land that Jesus gave to them, how did they respond to their Messiah? 
Verse 11 again. And those who were his own did not receive him. To receive someone is to take a person to yourself in an intimate relationship. It's the same term used to describe Joseph taking Mary as his wife in Matthew 1. Jesus came to his own home. He came to the people that he had been caring for and preserving for millennia. That he had sustained a relationship with since the time of Abraham. He came to them and they refused to have a relationship with him. His own people rejected him. John uses a verb tense here that kind of stops the narrative. The way he's written this, it's like you're watching a play and the curtains drop, the lights go out, and you get one spotlight. And that spotlight is shining right here on this statement. His own people rejected him. They did not recognize him. They did not receive him. They wanted nothing to do with their own Messiah. They were completely blind to who he truly was. Just couldn't see it. The light of the world showed up, was standing right in front of them, and they couldn't see it. The question is why? Why do sinners reject Christ? It's because they want nothing to do with him. If you're not a Christian this morning, understand your problem is not evidence. Your problem is not that you have yet to be convinced about the truth of Christianity. Your problem is that you love sin. The problem with the Jews is that they loved their sin. You hate holiness. You hate righteousness. And you want nothing to do with Christ. Not because you're not convinced of who he is. You want nothing to do with him because turning to Christ would mean you would have to give up on sin. And even that thought is devastating. You reject the light of the world. You reject Jesus Christ because you love sin. You're blinded by your own sin. John 3, 19 and 20, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There it is. They don't come to the light not because they're missing evidence, not because they don't have the truth. They don't come to the light because they hate the light. They love their sin. That sin is hid in the darkness. And if you come to the light, that sin will be exposed. And unless your desires change, unless you go from loving sin to loving righteousness, you too will likewise perish. So how can that happen? How can my desires change? How can I go from loving sin to loving Christ? That brings us to the third truth. The divine light reveals there is only one means of salvation. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
Notice he starts the verse with, but. He's contrasting those who rejected Christ in verses 9 and 11 and those who received him in verses 12 and 13. And he says, as many as received him. The same term here for received is used in verse 11. Here it refers to those who saw the light, who believed, and who accepted Christ. They recognized Christ for who he is. They loved him. They followed him. This is talking about people who have been converted, that have trusted in Christ. And to those individuals, John says, he, that would be Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. Now, I want to point out, when he says children of God, understand only one person in Scripture is referred to as a son of God. That's Jesus. Believers are never referred to as son of God. Believers are always referred to in a plural, children of God. John eleven fifty two, 52, speaking of the death of Jesus, and not for our nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God speaking of all those that would come to saving faith in Christ. 1 John 3, 1. Our position as the children of God is evidence for the Father's love. John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Notice in verse 12, he says that you could become. You are not naturally God's child. You hear people today say, well, we are all children of God. No, we're not. The unbelieving world is not full of God's children. The unbelieving world is full of people who are at enmity with God. They hate God. Romans 8 makes that clear. Those who receive Jesus, those who love him, to those people and to those people only, he gave the right to become children of God. The right to claim such an exalted status, to take on the status and the rights of a child of God. To be adopted by him. For God the Father to become your father. To receive an inheritance from him. To be heirs and joint heirs with Christ. To all the spiritual blessings of heaven. This is given. He gave it to them. It was not earned. It cannot be purchased. It is an unmerited gift. Unmerited and undeserved. You can do nothing for it. And it is given only to those who receive Jesus. That is to say, what he says next to those who believe in his name. Now, in the ancient world, the name, a name referred to the entire person. It referred to his life. It referred to the character of the person. It referred to their work. To believe in his name means to believe in him as he truly is. It is to believe that God is God. It is to believe that he has revealed and to, excuse me, it is to believe all that he has revealed and to trust him completely. To believe in Jesus means that you believe everything that he has said. Everything he has said about himself, everything he has said about you, everything he has said about the world. And in doing so, you yield yourself to him. And you follow and you obey him. You become the child, he becomes the parent, and you follow and obey. 
you trust him as an infant trusts the arms of a mother. But this still doesn't answer why some believed and others didn't. Why did some of those people believe in Jesus, but the rest of them didn't? Why did some people see the light and the others remain blind? Look at verse 12. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John says the difference between those who believe and those who do not believe is not a decision, it's a matter of birth. Notice he says, those who were born. This is a continuation of verse 12. Those who received Jesus, those who believed on his name, they and they alone are discussed in verse 13. He says they were born. This is spiritual birth. It's the same birth Jesus discussed in John chapter 3 when he talked to Nicodemus. And he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's the same idea that the, the prophet Ezekiel spoke about in Ezekiel 36. When, he said, when God said, I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. It was discussed by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, those who are in Christ are new creatures. He said in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You must be given spiritual life. Those that received Jesus, that believed in his name, did so because they had received spiritual life. They had been born again. When Jesus told Nicodemus he must be born again, Nicodemus said, well, can a man return to his mother's womb? And to avoid such confusion, John here clarifies what he means by being born again. He clarifies how this happens. Look again at verse 13. Who were born not of blood. That is to say, their spiritual birth is not the result of their ancestral heritage. It's not something they inherited from mom and dad. Their family lineage did not play a role in their new birth. The Pharisees thought, well, we're children of Abraham. Therefore, we must be saved because we're part of this lineage. Jesus responded to them and said, if you were truly a descendant of Abraham, speaking spiritually, you would believe in me. His point was that the Pharisees were depending upon their family lineage, on their blood, to save them. No one's going to heaven because their parents believed. Salvation is not inherited. Children in the room, your parents are believers. And the fact that your parents are believers doesn't save you. It won't do anything for you. Salvation is a one-person-at-a-time event. Each person must be born again. You cannot depend upon your parents or their service in the church. It cannot bring you spiritual life. Look again at verse 13. He says, Those who believe are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh is the natural desires of an individual. 
it refers to their personal choices. There's a very popular way of doing ministry these days where you tell people to walk an aisle and repeat a prayer and make a decision. Some have even said you should give Jesus a try. No, you you try broccoli. You don't try Jesus. Salvation is not the result of your personal decision. You're blind. You're dead. You can no more choose to be born again than you can choose to raise a person from the grave. It's outside of your control. You cannot bring someone back to life, and you cannot give yourself spiritual life. Finally, John says they were born not of the will of man. This refers to human systems, institutions, religious rites, sacraments. Well, I I was baptized as a baby. I must be Christian. Well, I'm a part of Grace Bible Church of Bernie. Therefore, I'm on the way. I'm going to heaven. I participate in this ceremony or that ceremony. John says, none of those things save. None of those things give this new life. And when you take all of these statements together, what you realize is that there is nothing that a human can do. There is no human effort that can bring about salvation. Those who believed on Jesus became the children of God because they were given new spiritual life, not a result of their family lineage, not because they made a decision, and not because they participated in some human institution. You cannot be saved by those things, and you cannot experience this new birth from those things. So that leaves us a question. Okay, it's not going to church, it's not participating in religion, it's not my family or my personal decision. So how can I be saved? Well, the good news is the divine light, Jesus Christ, reveals the only means of salvation. Look again at the end of verse 13. They were born of God. Salvation is a work of God alone. You cannot earn it. You can't force it. You can't choose it. You simply receive it. Jesus Christ reveals that salvation, Jesus Christ, the divine light, reveals that salvation occurs only in genuine Christian ministries that point directly back to Christ that send the sinner to Christ and to Christ alone. That all the hope of the world lies in Christ and in nothing else. The divine light, Jesus Christ, reveals that sinners reject Christ because of their blindness, because they love sin. They hate God, they hate Christ, they hate righteousness. Their lack of salvation is not because they are ignorant or they're missing some information. Finally, the divine light reveals that there is only one means of salvation. Salvation occurs through a miracle. A sovereign act of God in which God grants to the sinner new life. God changes your desires. 
he gives you new desires, new longings. You go from hating Christ to loving Christ. You go from loving sin to hating sin. Everything in life changes. And if you're not a believer this morning, you need to understand. The truth is you're headed for condemnation. The truth of your condition has been revealed by the divine light. You are a sinner. The wrath of God abides upon you. And there is absolutely nothing you can do to change that situation. Your only hope, your only chance is to call upon Christ. Not go to him and say, Lord, I've made a decision. Not to ask him into your heart. To call upon him, to beg him to change you. To give you spiritual life so that you can begin to hate the sin that you now love. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest for your souls. And you will find rest for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Christ is a merciful Savior. And if you are a believer this morning, as we sang in the song earlier, your obedience to Christ is not based upon your strength. Jesus said in John 15, without me you can do nothing. Jesus was the answer to your sin before you were a believer. He's an answer to your sin while you're a believer. Let's pray. Father, we we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have made a way for us to be saved. That it's not based on our efforts, it's not based on our works. It's not based on how good we are inherently because we are not. It's based upon Christ, who Christ is and what he has done. Father, you know the hearts of everyone here. You know who is and who is not a believer. And we just ask that you would change those hearts. That you would bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ, that they would receive him in faith and in love. For those of us who are believers, we do ask that you would draw us closer to Christ, that we would see him more clearly, that we would love him more, that we would adore him and that we would serve him, not in our strength, but in his. And we ask this in his name. Amen.